Well, today, brothers and sisters, I counted. Today is the 30th and last sermon in our series through the book of Hebrews. If you've been here with us, we've been going through this powerful letter in the New Testament. This letter is by an author. We don't quite know who they are, but they're writing to Jewish background believers, those who used to follow Judaism but then came to know Christ. But there's a problem. They're, they're struggling. Life is very hard for them. And they think that Christianity maybe isn't worth following anymore, that Jesus isn't worth it, and they should go back to their old way of life. And our author has emphasized repeatedly again and again, no, Jesus is better. He's better than going back to what you knew before, and he's better than anything else you could go to or compare him to. And I really hope, for those of you who've been here, it, for, we've talked about this for 30 weeks, I hope that message has sunk in to you that Jesus is truly better. So if that's true, Jesus is better, what does that mean for our lives? As we leave this book, what is the lesson, the takeaway that we should take from it? Well, I think the, the one that stands out the most to me is if since Jesus is better, that means we need him. We need him. We need him in our lives. We are completely dependent on him. And today what our author is going to do is call out to him in prayer. That's how we talk to him, express our needs, concerns, tell him how we need him to work in our lives. And the final remarks in this book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 18 through 25, talk about just that. It's a prayer to our Lord. It's a prayer for those who serve the Lord. It's a prayer for spiritual growth. It's a prayer that God would equip us to do his will in a way that pleases him. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. It will be up on the screen. You can look it up in, in whatever you have. If you want to use the blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 1198. And once you are there, I'd ask you, if you would, to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. This is Hebrews 13. I'm going to start in verse 18 and reach the very end of the book. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 18. The author speaks to the Hebrew Christians and says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may that God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Lord, as we finish our study in Hebrews, may you drill that message deep 
into our hearts that Jesus, your son, is better, is so much better, God. May that knowledge lead us to call out to you in prayer. May we pray for those who serve you, that they would do so with a clear conscience and honorably. God, I pray that you would lead us so that we would receive your word. Let it change us, mold and shape us into the men and women that you want us to be. I pray your word would encourage us every time we open it. Oh, and God, we pray desperately for spiritual growth because we need you. We need you to equip us so that we can do what you have asked us to do. And not only that, God, we need you so that we can serve you in a way that pleases you, that brings you joy. God, not because we have to to earn favor with you, not because we have to or else you'll be angry with us. No, but because we're so grateful for what you have done for us, especially what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we really steer into this last message, I just want to reaffirm that message to us that Jesus is better. He's the one that we should call out to. And so if you'll give me just a few minutes, I'd I'd like to very quickly kind of review what we've talked about in this book of Hebrews and what we've learned about how Jesus is better. If you'd like, you can can follow along, flip along, or scroll along or whatever. I'm just going to very quickly run through what we talked about in this book and how reaffirming and encouraging it is that we have such a Lord and Savior. So way back in chapter 1, the first three verses, we were introduced to this idea that Jesus is better And he's better because God has spoken through his son. He is fully God and he has finished his work of salvation. The rest of chapter one told us that Jesus is better than the supernatural because he created beings like angels. He is worshiped by angels. As we got into chapter two, the first nine verses reminded us that Jesus is better than giving up on the faith or drifting away from God. Because Jesus offers us salvation. He controls everything that we see. And he was the one who died to save us. Verse 10 through the end of chapter 2 told us Jesus is a better brother. He's a better brother because he suffered for his family. He died to defeat death and he is there to help his people now. Chapter 3, 1 through 6 told us Jesus is better than our heroes. It specifically highlighted the man Moses, who the Israelites looked up to so much. And the author said, no, Jesus is better than him because Jesus is God's son. And Jesus himself has built a people for God, a people, a group, a church that we should cling to. The rest of chapter 3 said Jesus is better than fake faith. The author challenged us to search our hearts, to encourage others, and to hold firm to the end. Chapter 4, 1 through 11, presented Jesus as a better rest. There is a rest that he gives us that we can strive for based on our faith and a relationship with him. We slowed down a lot to then look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4 because Jesus is a better word. He is living and active. His word is piercing into our hearts, and we need that because we're going to give an account to God. Verses 14 through 16 encouraged us that Jesus is better than going it alone because we can hold firm and we can draw near to Jesus, the one who was tempted but did not sin, and he can help us in our time of need. 
Chapter 5 began by speaking of Jesus' perfect suffering, the sacrifice that tells us that any suffering we experience in life has a purpose in it. And so we can have hope in that purpose. Chapter 5, verse 11, going into the first few verses of chapter 3, told us Jesus is better than being comfortable. It challenged us to grow spiritually, to grow to the maturity, to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, said Jesus is better than having a false hope or having no hope of salvation because he does a work in us and we can look at that fruit he produces in our lives and we can find assurance that we know God. Verses 13 through 20 presented Jesus as a better promise because he gives us an example to imitate and he gives us an anchor of promise that we can hold on to in the midst of the storms of life. As we hit the halfway point in chapter 7, we, I said somewhat cheekily that Jesus is better than your boss because he's a better king, a better priest who brings real and lasting change and hope into our lives. The rest of chapter 7, I described as Jesus is better than your lawyer because he is a perfect advocate. He perfectly intercedes for us before God. He represents us perfectly before him. Chapter 8 talked about this much better relationship that we have with God because we have a new covenant and it is better than any other relationship that we have ever had. Pastor Tom spoke to us about the first 14 verses in chapter 9. He told us how Jesus is a better sacrifice, that he fulfills the sacrifices we read about in the Old Testament. The rest of chapter 9, I've said Jesus is better than a blood donor because his once and for all shed blood, his death, was what was needed to save us from sin. Chapter 10, 1 through 18, emphasize that Jesus' single sacrifice is better than any follow-up or any added work. We don't need to add something to what Christ has done because he has done it all. In the middle of chapter 10, 19 through 25, I said Jesus is better than skipping church because he did all that so that we would come together and encourage one another. Verses 26 through 29 told us Jesus is better than turning back because if we turn away from him, that is where God's judgment is. But it's not something we have to do alone. He gives us what we need to persevere. In chapter 11, Pastor Tom spoke to us again about how Jesus is better than blind faith because we can trust him to keep his word. It's not all we, we wish something would happen. We can trust that God will do what he says. Verses 17 through 40 present how Jesus is better than having your best life now because his people know that there is something better still to come. The first two verses of chapter 12 reminded us Jesus is better than a finish line. He's better than any goal that we could set for our lives. He gives us something we can strive for. He is worth running after. But it won't be easy. Verses 3 through 11 told us he's better than being spoiled. God disciplines those he loves so that they reach the goal that God has for them. Verses 12 through 17 spoke of how Jesus is better than a participation trophy. He gives us a goal that we can reach. He gives us a goal to strive for, peace with others, peace with God, and holiness, looking like our Lord. The last few verses of chapter 12 reminded us that Jesus brings us to a better mountain, a better place that we can relate to God, and he also brings us into a better eternal kingdom. The first six verses of that, chapter 13 
instructed us that Jesus is better than self-love because he calls us to love and value others and our relationships with them. And then finally, last week, verses 7 through 17 said that Jesus is a better leader. He stays the same, but he was rejected by the world so that we would know God. And now he calls us to follow him, to stick with him through the trials of life. That's what we talked about over these past 30 weeks, and I hope the inescapable conclusion that you can draw from all that is that, yes, Jesus is better. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who changes us, and he's the one to call out to when we have a need. And so knowing that Jesus is better, our author now ends this letter with some personal request for the Hebrews that he's writing to. He turns in kind of a personal direction. And like last week, if you remember, we read some verses at the beginning of our passage and some at the end, because I said it was emphasizing what's in the middle. I think kind of the same thing is happening here. We're going to read some of the beginning and some at the end, and then focus on the middle. But at the beginning and the end, he's speaking very personally and directly to his audience. It's a real person who these people know, and he's addressing real issues in their church. And his first request of these Hebrews that he knows and loves so much is that they would pray for those who serve the Lord. He encourages them to pray for those who serve the Lord. He asks for prayer using kind of that plural us, meaning me, pray for us, pray, pray for me. And these people are praying, but he wants them to continue doing it. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So look at those words. Why does he want the Hebrews to pray for him and pray for those who serve as pastors, missionaries, or any other way they're serving the Lord? Why should we pray for them? He says, so that they have a clear conscience. We should pray for those who serve the Lord that they would live and act in a way that is honorable and glorifying to God, that they serve in the world in a way that there could be no charge against them. We don't want those who are serving the Lord in in a full-time or a primary way. We don't want them to bring shame on the name of Christ. We want them to serve responsibly. That is what he's asking them to pray for. Paul talked about how concerned he was about this in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul is speaking and says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He wants to have a clear conscience to serve honorably in the world. We don't want those who are serving God to have a double life, a life that hides scandal. Because as we all know, every scandal is revealed. Nothing can be hidden forever. No, we want those who serve God to serve with integrity and transparency. Every sin will be revealed. We need a clear conscience before God. And so we should take this message too. We should pray for those who serve our Lord. Our author values them. He wants them to pray because it will help him, sure, but he also values his relationship with them. He wants to be restored to them. He wants to spend time with them again. Maybe he's a, we're not 100% sure, but he speaks of such close relationship. Maybe he's a member of this church who's traveling far or serving somewhere else. Or maybe he just really loves these brothers, sisters in Christ and wants to be with them again. 
Paul has a similar prayer request in the book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Paul, like this author, loves the people he's writing to, wants to be with them. What a great, encouraging picture of what it looks like for brothers and sisters to enjoy time together. But I think the main takeaway we get from this is we need to pray for those who serve the Lord. Now, let me be clear. Each of us is responsible for our own sin. Each of us will be held accountable to God for what we do. Yet, I still think looking at this, that maybe part of the reason why so many Christian leaders fail, or perhaps more accurately, why, why we together pick so many people to lead us who fail, is because we're not praying for leaders to have a clear conscience. We're not praying for them to serve with honor. Maybe we focus more on what a leader says or what a leader does rather than who they are on the inside before God. So friends, I would encourage you, yes, yes for me, but for anybody who's serving the Lord, pray that they would do so with a clear conscience and with honor. That's his first request of these Hebrew believers. But when we jump down to verse 22, the author also encourages the Hebrew Christians to receive God's word, to receive the word. The author wants them to embrace the teaching of this book that he's just giving them, this letter. He wants them to receive the word. Look at verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, if you ever wonder if the Bible has a sense of humor, just look at that line there. At the end of 13 chapters, I have written to you briefly. (laughs) Now, maybe part of the explanation for that is that he says this is a word of exhortation, so maybe this was a copy of a sermon that this person preached at one time, a sermon in letter form. And maybe as long as it is, maybe this was short for sermons of the time. It takes about an hour to read through Hebrews, and so maybe that was just short for how they preached then. There was less going on. If you remember stories from the New Testament, you might remember the Apostle Paul is once preaching somewhere, and he preaches for so long that somebody falls asleep and falls out of a window. He's okay then, but the point is they preached for a long time back then. But regardless, his main instruction here is to bear with, to heed, to listen carefully, to pay attention to what he has written them. It's a word, a truth that they need to hear. They should carefully ponder what he has said. They should apply it to their lives. What he's doing is he's practicing what he preached earlier. Way back in chapter 3, he encouraged them, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's telling them, you should encourage, exhort one another, tell one another what is true about God, and that is what he has done in this book. It's a reminder to all of us, we should take time to encourage one another to follow our Lord and to do His will. But I think the main lesson for us to take away from in this verse is that we should approach hearing from God's Word from a place and a position of humility, of humility. Because we need humility to receive God's truth as it's taught to us. The reality is no one in this room, myself included, anyone else has everything figured out. We don't have all the answers. 
And so when we open the Bible to read it, when we're sitting down in a small group to study it, maybe a Sunday school class here or a Bible study, and yes, when the sermon is going to be delivered, we need to develop hearts that are ready to receive God's Word. The point of reading God's Word, talking about it, hearing from it, is not so we can share our own personal experiences, our own personal thoughts. No, it's to hear what God has to say and let His Word change us. It's not to have our own ideas confirmed, but it's to have our minds shaped by the Lord. I was thinking about this this morning, and, and I apologize for sports example if sports aren't your thing, but it would be like if Michael Jordan, or your kids, you kids don't know who that is, Steph Curry called you and said, hey, I'm going to show you how to shoot basketball. And you get there and you just tell him everything you know about shooting basketball. No, that, that's not the point. The point is you're there to learn. Or if Tiger Woods asks to show you golf moves and you insist that, he, that you show him how he can fix his swing. No, no, that, that's, that's not how we should, would interact in that situation. And that's not how we should approach God's word. We should develop the humility to let God's word challenge us, to let it approach, almost attack our preconceptions, to let it mold and shape us, change our thoughts, not us put what we think into it, but let it change us. So let me encourage you, before you open the Bible, before you sit in a science school class, a Bible study, before the sermon starts, or maybe before the worship service starts, ask God, to give you a heart of humility, a heart that is ready to receive his word. The author says this at the end, maybe encouraging them to go back and read it again and let the word sink into their lives. The final thing the author wants the Hebrews to do is he just wants them to be encouraged. He wants to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants them to be encouraged. In verse 23, he appears to be a mutual friend of Timothy. And if you've read the Bible some, you might remember Timothy. He's the Apostle Paul's protege, who's very close to Paul. And our author wants to encourage them because Timothy has been released from prison. He says in verse 23, you should know our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. This statement, I'm sure, gave them encouragement because they probably knew Timothy. They were so glad to hear that he was now out of prison. But I think it also gives us a different kind of encouragement than it even gave them. Because, friends, we have the whole New Testament. So we know all about Timothy's life. And what's interesting about this verse, talking about the fact that Timothy was in prison, is that it shows us that Timothy listened to his mentor, Paul. Because Paul told Timothy he would need to be willing to suffer for his faith. The very last book that we believe the Apostle Paul wrote that he was a personal letter to Timothy. And look at what he says in this letter. In, in chapter 1, he says, Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the faith. It may lead you to end up in, in some type of prison or suffering, you need to share in suffering. And then the very next chapter, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Friends, this is, so when we read this verse in Hebrews, it's an encouragement to us because we know Timothy did just that. He listened to Paul. He was faithful to follow him. He was willing to suffer for his faith. 
that encouraged the Hebrews, it should encourage us as well. God always has faithful servants who faithfully follow him. In verse 24 of our text, the author encourages them by extending greetings to them. He extends greetings to everyone in the church, from the leaders all the way down. And he seems to highlight uh, some greetings from those who are from Italy. And if you remember way back at the beginning, that, that's why we think this letter was going to people who lived in the city of Rome. The author's somewhere else, but there's people with him who, live, who were from Italy, and they want to say hello to their family back home. We don't know for sure, but we think that's what's happening here. And then finally, he gives a common New Testament letter ending, grace be with you all. That's also an encouragement, an encouragement to remember, experience, and be shaped by God's grace, because God's grace that he calls us into his kingdom is what gives us hope. One scholar writing about this passage named F.F. Bruce, he, he had this reflection about it. And something I'll, I'll point out about this before I read it, uh, it, it seems so appropriate for today, but he wrote this back in 1964. So it's an older statement, but it's still so true today. He was reflecting on this grace be with you and says, so in a day when everything that can be shaken is being shaken before our eyes and even beneath our feet, well then let us in our turn give thanks for the unshakable kingdom which we have inherited, which endures forever when everything else to which men may pin their hopes disappears. Reminding ourselves of God's grace encourages us about the kingdom we're a part of and the kingdom we shall soon see in reality. God is faithful, so be encouraged. But in the middle of these personal requests the author has, the emphasis seems to be on a prayer he has, a final prayer he prays for these Hebrew Christians. And this beautiful prayer teaches us that we should pray for spiritual growth. We should pray for spiritual growth. This is this prayer in verses 20 and 21. Let's end by dwelling on what we learn from this prayer. And as you can see, the first thing we learn in this prayer for spiritual growth is that we need God. We need God. This prayer is what's sometimes known as a benediction. A benediction. It's just praying for God's blessing at the conclusion of a letter, a service, praying for God's blessing on the audience. The author just asked them in verses 18 and 19 to pray for him, and so now he is going to pray for them. He said what he needs to say. He's wrote this long book, this sermon he's delivered to him, and so now he's entrusting them to God. That's, that's all he can do. That's the same for me. I, I preach this sermon, and then I just have to leave it with you. I can't control what happens then. It's the same for him. He is leaving them and trusting them to God. And this very short prayer re-emphasizes themes we've discussed throughout the book about how Jesus is better and about how he changes us. So let's look at this prayer. It begins with, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's talk about a couple of words in there. It starts with this God of peace. That's actually very common in the New Testament in a closing prayer. It's reminding us that God is peace. He does not change. He's a constant through the storm. But I think more often what they're driving at when they say peace is that he brings peace 
to relationships. He restores broken relationships. Yes, he restores relationships between people, but this God especially restores his relationship with us. Because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, we have peace with God. He died to pay for our sins and bring us back to our Lord. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon said, all is peace between you and God, Christian. There is no past ground of quarrel remaining, nor any fear that a new one can arise. The everlasting covenant secures everlasting peace. If you know God through Jesus Christ, then you have everlasting peace with God. And this is the God that we can address in prayer. God, since my relationship has been restored to you, I can now make a request. Again, this is similar to what we see in other New Testament letters. For example, Paul in the book of Romans, toward the end of that book, chapter 15, he says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. But our passage doesn't stop there. It reminds us this God is not only a God of peace, but he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. When Peter was preaching, he said, God raised him, Jesus, up. He loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Oh, brothers and sisters, this this is the foundation of our faith, that Christ rose from the grave. The fact that he rose from death gives us hope that we too one day rise again. It guarantees our peace with God. The fact he rose from the grave shows us that our sin, yes, it was paid for, and yes, Christ won the victory over it. And so, in the words of our author, that makes him the great, the true, the good shepherd, the one who is there to provide for us and protect us. It hints that idea that we're like sheep, We're prone to wander away this way and that, but he, our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is there to bring us back. And particularly, it's saying that he brought us back from the lostness of sin and separation from God. Once again, Peter says about Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The reason Christ died is so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. And here's that image. You were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus saved us. He brought us back to him. And now our lives are to be about him, about following him. You saw an example of that today. We had a baptism with Michelle being baptized of what it looks like to follow God and have a life changed by him. Here, We see how Jesus shed his blood, how he gave his life to seal, to confirm, to validate our new relationship with God, our new eternal covenant. His death ratified and authorized our new relationship. We don't relate to God on the basis of what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. And before we talk about his people pray, let let me ask you, whether you're here on on the line, do you have that relationship with God? Has he changed and saved you? Have you come to peace with God? Have you been brought near by this good shepherd, the one who rose again? 
It's not something we earn. It's not something we do. Getting baptized, that doesn't make that happen. No, no, it's from turning from sin, believing, trusting, only relying on what Christ has done for us. If you have not done that, if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk more about that. And I'm sure many others here would love to talk about that as well. But I pray that you will seek that relationship with God. So that's who God is. That's what he did in the past. But what exactly are we praying for? What do we need him for now? Well, verse 21 tells us it's to equip us. We're praying for spiritual growth because we need him to equip us. To equip us. The prayer request is that God would equip his people to do his will. As verse 21 says, it's praying to the God of peace, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will as he is working in us. That word equip is is translated, used a bunch of different ways, different translations. Could be sanctify, set apart, could be perfect, confirm, establish, prepare. It's still driving at the idea, may God grow us in holiness so we look more like him. The, the image I had on the picture was, was like a doctor setting a bone because that's what we're asking God. We're asking God, can you fix what is broken? I was sinful. I was, was not functioning the way you intended me to. May you fix me so that I'm able to serve you. Perhaps use the sports again, like a team doctor resetting a bone so an athlete can compete. Or when we experience broken bone, resetting it so we're able to live. That's what God does for us. He re sets the broken bones, brokenness in our bodies so we can live for our Lord. The prayer asks God to fix us so we will be the men and women that God intends for us to be. And God predicted he would do this. He predicted it all the way back in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah, uh, recording God's words, God said in Jeremiah 32, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And what will that look like? I will put the fear, the reverence, the worship of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. He promised he would change us, mold us, shape us, fix what was broken so that we could live for him. And since God promised it, our author is asking God for it. He's praying for these people that God would do what he had promised for them, that he would give them everything they need to follow him. And God is faithful to do that. There is nothing that we need that he won't provide. After all, uh, the book of Philippians, Paul talks about how God is the one who does this work in us. Paul tells these believers, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. He tells them to do something, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, live for God, but it's not dependent on them. Because verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the one who works in us. We cannot do his will without his help. It's not not what I try to do for God. It's what God does through me. The Protestant reformer John Calvin put it this way, we are by no means fit to do good. We can't do good until we are made or formed for the purpose of of God. We shall not long continue in doing good. We won't keep doing it unless he strengthens us. Perseverance to keep going, to keep living for him is his, is God's peculiar gift. God needs to give us the ability to continue living 
for him. And we find a very similar prayer request from Paul in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He prays for them and says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God set you apart for him so you live for him. But then look at the encouragement he gives at the end. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Not not God's going to fix you, set you apart, so good luck with that. No, no. He will surely do it. That doesn't mean we sit back and we're like, okay, God, drag me to where I want to be. No, no, we need to grow and develop, seek to live more like our Lord. But we remind ourselves He is the one doing the work. One pastor I've really enjoyed reading about as we've been studying through this book is F.B. Meyer, and I really liked what he said here. He said, we must work out what He works in. We work out, live out the change that God has done in us. Or to put it another way, the Christian is the workshop of God. God does a work in our lives and we live that out. He's molding us, changing us, shaping us to live more and more for for our Lord. To look more like Him every day. The reason he saves us is so that we would reflect his life, his character, the love of his Savior to a dying world. So let let me ask you, let's, let's, let's bring this home. We're talking about prayer. The prayer request he's given is we should pray for spiritual growth. Let me ask you, is that a, is that something you pray for? Do you pray for that yourself? God, would you please grow, develop me spiritually? But then I'll point out that this author is not praying for himself. He's praying for these other people. Do you look at others and do you pray for them? God, would you help this person to grow spiritually, to live more for you? And yes, for yourself, are you seeking to live more for our Lord? I think often we get distracted by the things we see around us on earth. Whether it's things in the world around us, we we pray for these big things going on with other people or, or we pray for immediate concerns of ours, whether it's money, health, other things like that. Not that it's wrong to pray for that. Don't hear me saying that at all. But God instructs us here to pray for our growth, that we would look like Him on the inside and then live that out. We shouldn't be complacent, satisfied where we are. If you're here in this room, watching online, if you can hear my voice, you are alive. And if you know Jesus, He wants to grow you more. So pray, ask God for that growth. Now, you may say, why? Why, pastor, would I want to grow spiritually? Well, what's the point of that? Well, our author tells us, so that we may please our Lord, that we may please God. A life that looks like Jesus is a life that pleases God. We really steered into this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this now, but it's just incredible that we, you and me, finite creatures that live 70, 80 years, whatever it is, we can please an eternal God and Savior. We can bring Him joy. But look what He says. He's working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. But it's only through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Only Jesus can produce this in us. It's only through Him. He lived in obedience to God. He never did any wrong. And so now He can change us so that we live for God as well. But, but here's the real encouragement there. If you know God through Jesus, 
that means that God is pleased with you. Yes, when, when we, we sin, we, we fall, we, we could say it in a way that, that there's disappointment or, or something like that, but when God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ and he is pleased with us. He's pleased with what we do for him. John Calvin, one more time, said, Our works, when they're performed by the odor of Christ's grace, emit a sweet fragrance in God's presence, while otherwise they would have a foul smell. What we try to do by ourselves, our own glory, is sin, and that is offensive to God. But if we know Christ, although what we do smells like Christ, looks like him, and that pleases God. Again, when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about we're earning points for eternity. I'm not talking about we're earning salvation, but we are gratefully desiring to please our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to live a life pleasing to God, a life that's not about our interest, but His eternal purpose. He has called us to it, but we cannot do it alone. As this book has told us over and over and over again, Jesus is better. We desperately need him because in the end, he alone deserves the honor, glory, and praise forever and ever. And I love that. I love how this book that's been so focused on Jesus, so much about Christ, ends by praising him. That's what we try to do each week. At the end of the sermon, we try to end by praising God, and it's so appropriate that we do. As our author says here, Jesus is better. As he said throughout the book, Jesus is better. So what do we take from that? Well, we should pray for spiritual leaders, that they would look like him, that they would have a clear conscience. It means when we hear his word, when we read it, we receive it as from him, and it's coming to change us. It means that we let his word encourage us in dark days. And it especially means we should pray to this God that we so desperately need. We should pray to him, that he would equip us with what we need to live a life pleasing to him. And the reason we do that is because he alone, Jesus Christ, is worthy of praise.